We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And last Lord's Day, Pastor Indro concluded the second of two sermons to cover the first five verses. Well, today and next Lord's Day, Lord willing, I'm going to give the first of two sermons covering verses 6 through 19. Well, first, let's read our text. This is John 17. We'll start reading in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world or for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have their joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we assemble now in your presence on this most holy day, Lord, your direction and insight as we begin this study and contemplation of your word. May your Holy Spirit enlighten the words spoken and heard, causing them to echo in our hearts and bring transformation. Lord, give us attentive minds and receptive hearts. We may draw nearer to you and may, may empower us to live in accordance with your divine will. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, before we begin to dive into some, some details here, I want to first address a broader concern regarding this prayer that often comes up in debates. If you read commentaries on this prayer, especially like someone from John Calvin, you will find in Calvin a huge emphasis placed on the doctrine of election. And of course, this is not only true of Calvin, but of anyone who aligns themselves with Reformed theology and Calvinistic thought. And, surprise, surprise, there are many who claim that this emphasis on election unto salvation from this chapter is entirely misplaced. It is an error. And it is an error that comes from us supposedly interpreting the prayer out of context. One such example of, a, of objection comes from the writings of a man named Leighton Flowers. Leighton, I think, I think he's Southern Baptist, I'm not sure. But in my experience on the web for years and browsing around, I noticed that he is he's definitely one of the most active and more popular bloggers and podcasters combating Reformed theology. And Leighton has an article on his site titled, 
have you been given to Christ by the Father? And this article begins with this. It says, have you individually been given to Christ by the Father? Or are you one who believed in Christ through the message of those who were given to Christ by the Father? The Calvinist interprets John 17 to mean that all of us have been individually been, quote, given to Christ by the Father, quote, in the same manner that his elect apostles were while Christ was on earth. Let's look at the text, quote. He then begins his analysis, starting with verse 6. Now, I'm not going to read his entire article to you, but let me sum up for you his argument. His first argument is, is that we need to make a clear distinction in this prayer between two groups of people. Those who were with Christ during his earthly ministry and given the authority to spread his teachings versus those who would later believe in Christ through their message. So there are two groups Jesus is praying for here. First, the apostles, and secondly, those who will believe Christ through the teaching of the apostles. The Calvinist interpretation, says Layton, suggests that all believers are given to Christ in the same manner as the elect apostles were. And if that is so, he goes on to argue that this undermines the unique authority of the apostles appointed as God's inspired messengers. This prayer reveals, says Layton, that the first part of Jesus' prayer is temporal, focusing on those present during his earthly ministry who were entrusted with the foundation of the church. And then later in the prayer, Jesus only then extends to those who will believe through their message without explicitly stating that these later believers are, quote, given to Christ by the Father. Okay, so you understand what he's arguing? Sum it up. First, you've got to distinguish between two groups of people in this prayer. There's the apostles, and then there's those who will believe later on through the word of the apostles. Second, he says, election, which is expressed by the words given to Christ by the Father, is only said of the apostles. And third, election is not unto salvation per se, but unto an office or ministry of apostleship for the special purpose of proclaiming the word and writing scripture. He then ends his article with this. He says, is there any sense in which we too are, quote, given to Christ, unquote? Yes, of course, but not in the same sense intended by the author in this context. That is the point of proper hermeneutics to answer the question, what is the intention of the author? The intention of the author is to point out that these men were entrusted to Christ by the Father for a special purpose, a purpose that you and I are not entrusted with in the same way they were. I haven't met Jesus in the flesh, have you? I haven't walked on water with Jesus, have you? I haven't touched his nail-scarred hands, have you? I wasn't blinded on a road, were you? I didn't help start the first church, did you? I haven't written a book of the Bible, have you? I haven't performed miracles, have you? And so what makes you distinct from the apostles? That question must be objectively addressed to deal rightly with this passage in the historical context of the entire New Testament, unquote. And by the way, this is the type of argument that you'll not only see here in John 17, it's also something that's argued by anti-Calvinists in places like Romans 9, where it's said that election there is not unto salvation, but unto special ministerial calling for the nation of Israel. Well, is Leighton correct here? 
are we guilty of misapplying all of this prayer to all believers and thereby making false inferences regarding the doctrine of election, that's a salvation for all believers? And the answer is no, it's absolutely not correct. First, he misrepresents the Calvinist view by suggesting that we ignore a distinction in the prayer of two groups. We don't. And secondly, he is wrong to suggest that the election spoken of here in this prayer is not unto salvation. So let's deal with those two points. First, he actually is correct on this minor point that there are two groups being prayed for in this prayer. And we do not ignore that. Now, why do we say there are two groups here? Consider the following. In verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. By saying, I have manifested your name, this certainly does seem to highlight the fact that this is speaking of Jesus' personal ministry, which, of course, was to them and not to us. I don't know about you, but I was not around 2,000 years ago. Now notice verse 11. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Here Jesus points to the fact, as we have already seen in this gospel, that he is going to leave them. He's going to depart, but they will remain in the world, and he will leave. Now look at verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Here, Jesus is clearly talking about those with whom he was with. Again, that cannot be said of you and me. We were not with Christ. In fact, no one has been with Christ personally on this earth now for almost 2,000 years. And then notice what he goes on to say about those he was with. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that is, of course, a reference to Judas, who was one of the apostles. But now he says in verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, and your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And if that wasn't clear enough for you or convincing enough, Notice now what Jesus goes on to say in verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Layton is actually correct on this one little point. And I think that's the only thing he got correct, was Jesus does, in fact, pray for two distinct groups of people in this prayer. He prays for those who were with him personally in his earthly ministry before he leaves and departs. 
And then when you get down to verse 20 and following, he then begins to pray for a second group of people made up of those who later on, after his departure, will believe in Christ through the word that was proclaimed from the first group, that's the apostles. And so that is a useful and helpful distinction for you to understand as you try to outline in your mind what this prayer is about. He is correct on that one point, but he's wrong in suggesting that Calvinists ignore that. Interestingly enough, he never actually quotes Calvin in his article. All he had to do was read Calvin's commentary. Commenting on verse 20, which says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. Calvin says he now gives a wider range to his prayer which hitherto had included the apostles alone. For he extends it to all the disciples of the gospel, so long as there shall be any of them to the end of the world. And so no, we do not ignore that distinction. In verses six through 19, Jesus is praying specifically for the apostles of whom he was with in his earthly ministry before he goes on and departs to be with the Father. Calvin stated it plainly. Until verse 20, Jesus had included the apostles alone. But from verses 20 and on, he then extends it to all the disciples of the gospel, so long as there shall be any of them to the end of the world. So there is a distinction. But Leighton is also wrong by suggesting that we ignore that distinction. Now, on to the second point. And that is that he is wrong to suggest that the election here in this chapter is not unto salvation. It's interesting to know that not only did Leighton fail to actually quote Calvin, but when he begins to analyze this prayer, he starts his, uh, his uh, analysis with verse 6, rather than start with verse 1. Now, why is that important? Well, what did Jesus say in verses 1 through 5, which serve as an introduction to the prayer? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Notice here that all flesh is unqualified. That is, Christ has given authority over all without exception. There's no indication here that this all is restricted to simply just believers or Israel or whoever. And now for what purpose was Christ given authority over all flesh? To give eternal life. Clearly this is salvation, right? It's salvific. Jesus is not talking about giving some sort of teaching ministry or office. He is clearly talking about eternal life. And now notice, who does he give it to? To all, now notice this word all here is now qualified, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they, that is to all whom you have given him, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, beloved, the very thing that Leighton argues is never said in this prayer is exactly and precisely what Jesus says in this prayer in verse 2, which he conveniently skipped over by starting with verse 6. 
the Son will give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to the Son. That is the overarching reality to this prayer. That is what this prayer is primarily about. In this prayer, Jesus intercedes for all the elect, and he does so regarding their salvation. He starts with the apostles, and then he prays for the rest of us who will believe Christ on account of the words of the apostles. Now the apostles' special calling in ministry is not dismissed in this prayer. It's not irrelevant. You see this especially in verses 18 and 20. In verse 18, Jesus says that he has sent them into the world just as the Father had sent him. And then in verse 20, he acknowledges that later on there are going to be people who believe Christ through their word, their ministry. And so their special calling as apostles is not ignored. But the underlying reality to their apostleship and the overarching point here is that, elect, is that this applies to all of God's elect and that Jesus is specifically praying for the elect and their salvation. When Jesus, speaking of the apostles minus Judas, says things like, I have manifested your name to them and they have kept your word and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me and that you keep them in your name that they may be one and I have guarded them and do not take them out of the world but keep them from the evil one and he says Father sanctify them in the truth all of this is prayed by Christ in pleading for their salvation and then when we get down to verse 20 Jesus says I do not ask for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What is Jesus asking about? What is he pleading for? Their salvation. Commenting on verse 6, Calvin writes, Here Christ begins to pray for the, to the Father for his disciples, which Calvin later qualifies as the apostles. And with the same warmth of love with which he was immediately to suffer death for them, he now pleads for their salvation. Well, and then when you get down to verse 20 and following, Calvin writes this. He began with his apostles that their salvation, which we know to be certain, might make us more certain of our own salvation. And therefore, whenever Satan attacks us, let us learn to meet him with this shield, that it is not to no purpose that the Son of God united us with the apostles, so that the salvation of all was bound up, as it were, in the same bundle. Beloved, Calvin's absolutely correct here. That is the overarching theme of this prayer, which, as we saw, is clearly stated in Jesus' intro to the prayer in verse 2, which Dr. Flowers completely ignored. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, having established the point that salvation is primarily in view here, I now want to make some observations regarding the doctrine of election from this prayer. 
Our Lord's intercessory prayer here provides a very rich tapestry woven with threads of divine election that serves to illuminate for us the nature and the implications of election. The first point I want you to see regarding election is that election is of God's sovereign free choice. This prayer emphasizes God's absolute initiative in election. It begins with God. It does not begin with you and me. Verse 2 declares, Father, the hours come, glorify your son, that you may glorify you, since you have given him authority. And again, for what purpose? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The giving of eternal life is predicated upon the Father giving the Son the authority over all flesh in order to grant eternal life. And then verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Father sent the Son. You didn't send him, I didn't send him. The Father sent the Son. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Christ continually affirms that those chosen by God have always been God's own. It was God who set them apart from those who were not chosen, and that not because of their faith or any merit, but solely by his unmerited favor. Even despite their estrangement from him, he considers them as his own through his concealed divine plan. This is why our confession says, those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and does all this to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, would say in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul writing in Romans 8, 29, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then in 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8, Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering from the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been made uh, manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Beloved, election began in him, not in us. He elected us because of his own purpose and grace, not because of anything we did. The Father gave Christ the authority to save. The Father sends the Christ. The Father gave the work for Christ to do, and the elect were chosen by the Father, quote, yours they were, unquote, and they were given to Christ. The second point I want you to see about election is that election is particular, and it is not indiscriminately for all people without exception. While God's goodness does extend to all people, remember Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the Father makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God reserves his grace unto salvation only for those whom he has chosen. Notice what verse 2 here in John chapter 17 does not say. It does not say, to give eternal life to all without exception, but rather to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Calvin writes, Christ does not say that he has been made governor over the whole world in order to bestow life on all without any distinction, but he limits this grace to those who have been, who have been given to him. But how were they given to him? For the Father has subjected to him the reprobate. I reply, it is only the elect who belong to this particular flock, which he has undertaken to guard as a shepherd. So then the kingdom of God, Christ extends no doubt to all men, but it brings salvation to none but the elect, who with voluntary uh, terry, uh, obedience follow the voice of the shepherd, for the others are compelled by violence to obey him, till at length he utterly bruised them with his iron scepter. Look at verse 6. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and then you gave them to me. You see in this verse, not only the fact that it is a specific group of people for whom Christ manifested the Father's name, but now I want you to consider the nature of this manifestation. As we have seen earlier in this gospel, Jesus certainly preached to a wide swath of people, including many who would resist him 
and even tried to kill him. So why then does it say here in verse 6 that he disclosed the name of his father to only a limited number of people? Well, he says this because of the nature of what it means to manifest your name here. Jesus here is not referring merely to his outward preaching, but also to that inward illumination of the Spirit. And it is only the elect who truly benefit from the inward teaching of the Spirit. Hence, we can conclude that not everyone exposed to doctrine is efficaciously instructed, but only those whose minds are illuminated by the Spirit. And Christ attributes this distinction to God's election, for he identifies no other reason why he revealed the Father's name to some while bypassing others, except that they belong to the Father, and the Father gave them to Christ. As a result, we see that faith stems from God's predestination, and thus it is not bestowed indiscriminately on all, for not everyone belongs to Christ. Well, if that doesn't sell it for you, now I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 9. And this could not be any more explicit. Notice Jesus says here, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, while it is true that Christ is king and rules over all flesh, as we saw in verse 2, and while it is true that Christ preached to many who would end up rejecting him, with respect to the efficacy of the word leading unto salvation, notice that Christ prays exclusively for the elect and for them alone. He did not and he does not pray for everybody, but only for those whom the Father elected and gave to him. Now I'm going to say something here. might rouse some people up. In fact, it might even irritate some people within the Reformed community. But I think it needs to be said. There's this notion that God sincerely desires to save all people without exception. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that idea is false. I'll give you a little story to change it up a little bit. Back in the 1940s, a man named Gordon Clark sought ordination in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he was immediately opposed by some faculty members at Westminster, led by Cornelius Van Til. Despite their efforts, Clark was ordained. And by the way, our deceased pastor studied under Clark personally. But then Van Til and company tried to remove Clark from office. And they did they tried to do it on two fronts. One, they tried to argue that the ordination procedure was illegal. And then two, they went after Clark on some doctrinal issues. And one of those was over this issue of what, of what we call, quote, the sincere offer of the gospel. Now, if you ever want to take the time to read a good book on the whole controversy by a third party, 
I highly recommend Herman Huxleman's book called The Clark Van Til Controversy. I think he has some copies available at the seminary. Huxleman was one of the founders of the Protestant Reformed Church. And he actually witnessed all of this as it was happening. And then he wrote about it in his church's magazine, which then later got turned into the book. He noted that the distinction between the complainants and Dr. Clark did not lie in the fact that one side was advocating for the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel to all individuals, while Clark supposedly was arguing that we should only preach to the elect. This is impossible. It was our own uh, deceased pastor used to say, the elect are not walking around with a red dot on their forehead. We don't know who they are. Both parties agree that we should proclaim the gospel to all people. Furthermore, the difference did not stem from the complainants openly denying the doctrine of reprobation while Dr. Clark professed to believe it. They both affirmed the doctrine of reprobation, that is, that God has not elected some unto salvation. And then additionally, the dispute did not hinge on whether we should characterize the gospel as being an offer of Christ for salvation. The term offer, if understood correctly, according to our confessions and Calvin's usage, did not pose any issue for Clark. The crux of the matter was this. It was about the content of the gospel. It's about what we say to people about God and God's intentions. The complainants argued that the preacher must proclaim that God sincerely seeks the salvation of everybody without exception, even including the reprobated. And in contrast, Dr. Clark asserted what the preacher should proclaim is, is that God sincerely seeks the salvation of the elect. And so the disagreement centered on God's intentions and his attitude toward the reprobate in the preaching of the gospel. And while the complainants claim that God sincerely offers salvation to the reprobate and desires their acceptance, Dr. Clark maintained that according to scripture, God seeks his own glory and justification in preparing the reprobate for their just damnation through the preaching of the gospel. And despite the irrationality of the complainant's position, they embraced the irrationality as a mark of humility. Yeah, I know it doesn't make sense what we're saying. It certainly does appear to be contradictory that God intends to save everybody without exception, but doesn't actually will to save all people. That's just how it is. And you're prideful and you're a rationalist if you disagree with us. In fact, we just have to be content with the fact that all of our knowledge, to quote Van Til, is analogical and therefore must be paradoxical. And then Van Til will go on to say in his book, Common Grace and the Gospel, that all the truths of the Christian religion have of necessity the appearance of being contradictory. Robert Raymond, who I love, responded to this. He said, while those who espouse the presence in Scripture paradoxes are solicitous to point out that these paradoxes are only apparent and not actual contradictions, they seem to be oblivious to the fact that if actual non-contradictory truths can appear as contradictions, and if no amount of study or reflection can remove the contradiction, 
then there is no available means for us to distinguish between an apparent contradiction and a real one, since both would appear to the human existing in precisely the same form. And then he further argued that if such is the case, what they're saying is true, he condemns at the outset as futile even the attempt at doing systematic theology, which Van Til called for. Because it's impossible to reduce to a system irreconcilable paradoxes which steadfastly resist all attempts at being harmonized. See what he's saying? If all our knowledge of, of Scripture is contradictory, or appears contradictory, it's really not. How do they know that? I don't know. Then what's the point of me preaching? What's the point of me getting up here and trying to harmonize Scripture? What's the point of producing a systematic theology? Is the whole, when you're doing that, you're in the process of trying to harmonize Scripture using logic, using reason. And so I don't think those who opposed Clark were being humble in that moment. I think they were being irrational. I think they were doing so because of some bad theology and philosophy. I love being tilled. It has some great things, but they just dropped the ball on us. For if God is the initiator, as we've heard, if salvation of a person is only made possible by his sovereign choice, according to his own purpose and his grace, then why would God not will what he desires? Are we really to believe that there's some sort of internal war going on in the mind of God, where on the one hand, he truly wants and desires to save everybody, but on the other hand, he can't do it, or doesn't want to do it? Which is it? Is there something or someone greater than God that's preventing him from doing what he intends to do? Furthermore, if God genuinely intended for the salvation of all individuals without exception, how is it that in a prayer here by our Savior, in which he pleads for the salvation of men, he does not pray for everybody, but only for those whom the Father gave? There is no indication in any of this prayer that God intends and desires the salvation of everybody without distinction. In fact, you see quite the opposite. We see that the Father elected out of the world those to save. He gave them to Christ to save. Christ comes and he does the work that is necessary to save those given to him by the Father and then Christ prays and pleads for their salvation, and he doesn't do it for anybody else. And then the third point I want you to see is the purpose of election. Now, election here in this prayer is certainly unto salvation. We've already addressed that in verse 2, where Christ is said to give eternal life. But I also want you to understand that election itself is not salvation. Election is a step that leads to salvation. Election is not an end of itself, but a beginning. It's a means to a goal, and that goal is eternal life. And the reason why I think this is important to point out, I actually had an old friend of mine who argued that because he believed he had been eternally elect, there was never a time in his life when he was not regenerated. 
<laughs> and so getting saved for him, which is simply waking up to the fact he'd been saved all along. And friends, that is a serious error that comes from equating election with salvation. Notice here in this prayer, which by the way, what's even the point of Jesus praying if election equals salvation? Or if we have already been elected since the foundation of the world, then what's the point of pleading for our salvation? We already have it. But notice that there was a necessity for Christ to come. There was a necessity for Christ to be sent. There was a necessity for Christ to accomplish a work. There was a necessity for Christ to manifest God's name to the elect. To give them the words of the Father so that they would believe. There was a necessity for Christ to guard them. And there was a necessity that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. Furthermore, eternal life is described by our Lord as knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom the Father had sent. And Christ had to give them the word so that they could receive that word and in turn come to know in truth that Jesus came from the Father. All of this presupposes that there was a time in which they did not know these things and had not believed at some point. Furthermore, this knowing in truth here is not just some head knowledge of knowing facts about Jesus. As we have seen in verse 6, regarding the nature of the manifestation to the elect, this knowledge involves a work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, whereby by faith they believe to be true whatever is revealed in the Word, and they accept and receive and rest upon Christ alone for their justification, sanctification, and eternal life, which then as a result causes the elect to then act differently. When you equate election alone as salvation, then what you end up with is someone like my old friend who thought he was just fine because he knew some facts from the Bible. And he didn't care at all about things like progress and sanctification. Which is why he and his whole family went to pot. Beloved, election is unto salvation. And salvation most certainly includes, among many things, our continual growth in holiness. In fact, Jesus is going to speak to this very thing in this prayer, but we'll save those details for next week. And then fourth, I want you to see that election is inseparable from Christ in union with him. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, we read it before, but again, notice the emphasis here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, was, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we be holy and blameless before him. I know I've said this before, like I'm beating a dead horse, but I'm going to say it again. There is no salvation outside of Christ and outside of embracing Christ for who he is and what he taught and revealed in the Word. This notion that a person can reject Christ or radically define who he is and still make it to heaven is absolutely absurd. I don't care how sincere your monotheistic Jewish or Muslim friend may be, 
If he rejects Christ as he is presented in the word, then he rejects the Father and is in turn rejected by the Father. Notice in this prayer the inseparable connection to Christ in all of this. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Verse 3, this is eternal life. They know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And then verses 22 and 23, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them. And you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Our confession says the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Paul says to the, to the Colossians in 1.18, And he that is Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, there simply is no election, there is no salvation spoken of here that is the void of Christ. And you might object, well, that, that really narrows things down a bit. That certainly would exclude a great deal of people, to which I would say go back to points one and two. The issue here is not what you or any else, anybody else wants to see. What you and I think doesn't matter. The focus here is what God has decreed to happen according to the good pleasure of his will and purpose to the glorification of himself and of his son. Was to be made preeminent in all things. How can you have salvation apart from Christ? It's impossible. And then lastly, I did have a fifth point, but I will save that for next week. So we'll conclude. Beloved, well, that understanding election from a Calvinistic perspective, which I believe we have extracted from the text itself. Very, very profound implications, not only for our theology, but also for the very fabric of our lives. First, it should breed humility. The reality of election, election strips away any notion of self-reliance and of pride and of accomplishment. We realize that salvation isn't a summit scaled by our own grit but it is a gracious gift bestowed upon us by God's sovereign hand. And this ought to humble you to your very core and replace arrogance with awe and a dependence upon God's divine mercy. And then secondly, it should breed gratitude and love. How in the world can you not be overwhelmed by the love of a God who chose you if you are chosen not for any inherent worth in you, 
but because of the depths of his sovereign grace. Paul was right to the Romans, Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Beloved, the doctrine of election when held with a reverent heart grounded in scripture is not some cold theological proposition but it is a transformative force that shapes our very being and it cultivates humility gratitude love so let us walk in light of this understanding let us relish in god's love and live lives worthy of the calling we have received let's pray